This individuality stuff is a bunch of crap. There's a reason why. A master of innovation. The key to this growing is you. Any rational person would give up. I can't disagree with that. Make sure that we're not prisoners of our own experiences. You need a team of great people. We'll not tolerate a loser. What they need is a common vision. All right, Matt, thanks for joining us today, man. Appreciate your time. Brother, I appreciate it. Small world that we, uh, we, we connect to a complete third party that we didn't know either one of us. Um, we didn't know each other, but she works for your company and wanted, thought that I'd be a good fit for the show. And who knew that we were both former air marshals. So. Yeah. Yeah. What if, in, in the Philadelphia office, nonetheless, yeah. very, very yeah. small world. That's that, that's a, uh, I don't know if that's called an elite brotherhood or just a, uh, it's a well, club. Well, I mean, it's there's only, cl- yeah, there's only so many that are in the office. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's certainly an eclectic group. That- <laughs> Eclectic's right. Hey, so you and I, I mean, I love to start talking. Usually I like to start talking with our guests about their background and, and just sort of what the unique part of their story is. But uh, you and I were just talking a second ago, and I, I think I got to start with this. You were Tim Tebow's bodyguard for five years. Yeah, almost. Yeah. So, and, and to, to put a little bit more context around it, I didn't yeah. work for him every day. It wasn't like sure. a, uh, so it was situational when he needed stuff. It started when he was in college um, for, and it, it actually started because I was the head of security for Maxwell football club, which is based out of Philadelphia. And uh, the Maxwell award is internationally recognized was one of the top awards in the, in the world of football, uh, both high school, college, and pro. So he won as a sophomore after they won the the OA championship, which is one of those jerseys there behind me. Um, and nobody wanted to do security for him. And I was running the detail, so I really didn't do the hands-on stuff. But none of my guys, which were all volunteer cops and, and former military guys, that um, for a weekend get to hang out with celebrities and get stuff signed and live life experiences that most people don't have access to. And um, nobody wanted to do Tim because he was the weird Christian guy that you know wouldn't be very exciting being around Tim, they thought. So long story short, I, I became close with him and his family, and um, they started bringing me out for things that they needed um, some reassurance for, and then that just grew from there. And sadly, <clears throat> when Tim became the most polarizing figure in sports with the kneeling yeah. um, and the, the tape of the, the Bible verses and all that stuff, his his polarity grew, but also did his fame. So he got signed by um, one of the big talent agencies, William Morris out in um, LA. And once you do that, then they own all aspects of your personal and and professional life. So they have their own security people. So I got phased out. So, which it probably met its natural end, but uh, great family, great human being. And certainly when you're old sitting around the campfire, great stories. What what do people not know about uh, the executive protection or the bodyguard work that uh, what, that they think they know? Like what what is the what's the Hollywood myth and what's the truth in in what are the top three things that people go? Oh, yeah. Like you're like, hold on, brother. That's not at all what it's like. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like, you know, being in the military, an air marshal or a cop. It's, you know, 95 percent 
standing around, five percent fun. No, it's it's not. You're you're on your feet all the time. You're you're not sleeping much. It's uh, you're at the whim of someone else. Um, you get the the plans for what what the trip is or what the event is or. Yeah. And you have to come up with some sort of an operational security plan. And then that plan always gets thrown out the window because there's always a change that they that are on the fly. And then you've got to be able to adapt to it. So that's the bodyguarding world is not as glamorous as they make it look. And and nine times out of 10, you're help. You're not you're not part of their crew. You're not in the inner yeah. circle. You're just in a, a hired piece of a puzzle. And you really don't have any value to them outside of that. And the rare occasion is the Tebow family, which. You know, it started off more personal anyways. So it just sort of stayed in a hybrid professional personal world. And um, it was one of the rare security opportunities I had where I actually got to be, I don't want to say in the inner circle, but for a while I had access to a lot of things that no one else did and outside of working. So it was, uh, it was a rare but special time. Tell us a little about your story. I mean, I, you, you've got a fascinating story. You've, you've kind of had a uh, like an octopus, you've had tentacles and so many, so many, uh, a varieties of, or such a variety of endeavors. Uh, you went in the army back in the nineties. Is that right? 89. Yep. 89, four years in, got out, became a, a, a cop, right. And, so, uh, kind of give us like the, 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 the two minute rundown of your story. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can do two minutes, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. Yeah. And um, then we'll, we'll pluck into some of those. I am. A servant. That's what I've always been my entire life. And but a servant who has to have his own identity and his own way of handling things and his own. I don't like being told what to do. I'm not a uh, rule follower. I'm certainly not uh, the greatest teammate. I kind of headstrong and, and I'm always trying to find new ways to do something someone else has already done 100 different ways. So I had a, a Coast Guard appointment <laughs> coming out of high school, decided to enlist in the Army, not go to the Coast Guard. Um, because I didn't see myself doing well there because I was a smoke and mirrors kid. I was super smart, but I was always trying to find the loopholes. I didn't really care about the, the, the art of learning. I just cared about the art of winning. So getting A's, how do we get an A and move on to the next day? And that's kind of how I was. I grew up as a poor kid in Pottstown, Pennsylvania with a single mom. I was always trying to find a hustler. I was, we grew up in, in, in projects and just trying to, I was always shucking and jiving. I was a smoke and mirrors kid. And uh, so I knew I'd be exposed to the Coast Guard Academy as a smoke and mirrors kid. So I went in the army and found that I got exposed there. <laughs> so I didn't avoid getting exposed. I found out a different way. I went to Intel school and I found out that I needed to use my brain to become a crypt analyst. I really needed to learn it. And I couldn't just find the loophole in the system and exploit it. And I almost failed out. And luckily I didn't. And I became very good at my job as a Intel analyst and uh, served in the Gulf War. Got out, always wanted to be a cop since I was six. My mom dated a cop when I was little. And uh, first thing I sat in his car and put his hat on, I was like, that's it, I'm gonna be a cop. And so I got hired a few months after I got out in 93. And 28 years later, almost 29, um, still here. And it's been a crazy I, I, world. Of I gotta life. ask you, I wanna, I wanna dig into a couple of those things, but I gotta ask you, as a kid who, uh, you said by through your own words, not a rule follower, always looking for ways to to bypass the system or to beat the system. And I, I don't want to paraphrase or put words in your mouth. How does somebody like that end up in very rigid structures like the military and like police work 
uh, when that's in, in, and how have you reconciled those, the, the sort of the, the, the polar opposite, uh, mentalities? Oh, it's totally a great question. And I, I've, I've asked myself the same one, <laughs> um, because I always go back to while I am a, 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 a servant by nature, like I've always helped yeah. people. So that was where I was drawn. Like, how can I help people and do it? You know, cool. Like carry a gun, like really save that. I always had a hero complex. I've always had this desire to um, save the day. And so that's growing up. That was kind of my helping everybody. Like I did a lot of weird, crazy shit when I was younger to help people that you'd be like, you did that when you were 11, like that kind of stuff. And I saw it, it was a natural career choice but an unnatural personality choice. Like I didn't, I made the army fit me. Now I made it, I got myself in a lot of trouble throughout my four years in the army, but I always re recovered with a gigantic win. And then I have a setback getting in trouble and I recover with a gigantic win. And typically I would use my strengths to come up with those big wins. And then that would overshadow the fact that I couldn't show up for formations on time and my uniform wasn't necessarily the best and my boots certainly weren't polished. And, I didn't necessarily follow all of the rules. Um, and when I would get caught, I'd usually get jammed up pretty good. But then I come back and I do something, they go, holy shit, capable of that. And then that would be kind of my, my yin and yang. And then you know, sort of the same in law enforcement. It's, I'm, I've figured out how to be really, really good at certain parts of the job that, that naturally felt good to me while sort of Almost, you know, have you ever seen like in a, in a commercial, it's actually a commercial where they talk about this, where they focus on the main character and then everybody else blurs behind them. Yeah. It was like a, I don't know, an all-state commercial, whatever it was, Geico. But I was able to blur the stuff that I wasn't interested in. Because if I'm not interested, I'm not going to put any effort into it. And that's just the way I've always been wired. I've been able to blur those to the person looking at me. As it, almost like they accept those things to get this thing. And that's how we spent my career. But air marshals was a perfect example. Um, I couldn't follow certain rules. I just, it, I couldn't reconcile how stupid they were to justify my job. Like I would be like, fire me. <laughs> like, I'm okay, fire me. Like, I'm not doing that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Just, just fucking fire me. And that's what I would say. And they wouldn't fire me because they knew it was fucking stupid too. So like yeah. the person telling me it was to do it, knew it was stupid. And I would call, I was kind of ballsy enough, whatever the term is to call out that stuff, knowing that I could play my cards and be screwed. So back in the day, we, we started off in the, air, in the beginning of the air marshal program. It was kind of like a, a wild, wild west, you know, grow your hair long, do whatever you want. Anybody yeah. touches the cockpit door, six round ribs and drill at the back, you're the hero. And then it went to TSA. And then within a year of that, we became the secret service of the airline industry, where we were very publicly known who we were by the way we were dressed. And, you know, if you're flying a, an overnight trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico, they wanted you to wear a sport coat yeah. when everyone on the flight is wearing Tommy Bahama shirts and shorts and flip flops. And yeah. you walk on with your sport coat and you're like, listen, that just doesn't make any sense to me. If I'm supposed to help keep a plane from flying into a building or crashing into a field or having everybody on board get shot by a terrorist that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense if my job is to blend in and you're making me stand out right from the beginning you're, you're already putting yeah. me at a disadvantage we became storefront mannequins yeah. yeah we were we and we were the warm fuzzy and and quite frankly we were the punt team 
So if if you're a bad guy and you're casing out flights and they're not paying with credit card to get their flights, they're buying cash, flights one ways typically if they're going to do it. They're going to look and see where is the air marshal going because we've seen them walking around literally. And I don't know how it was when you got in, but it was literally you would walk through any airport in the country and like nod at each other because you knew who the other air marshals were. So if we could figure that out and he's looking to see where is an air marshal possibly going, I'm not going on that flight. And so we're just punting them to the 98 percent of the other flights that don't have an air marshal on them. So. To me, I, there's a lot of tactical and strategic problems with that that agency that I just couldn't reconcile. So I wrote a book about, and it wasn't even about the Air Marshals, but I wrote a book about my brother who was autistic and stuttered, passed away in 89, right before I went in the Army. And I wrote it while I was an Air Marshal because that's, I had a lot of free time <laughs> to do that. Yeah. So they tried to block me from publishing the book because I did talk about 9-11 and I did talk about joining a, an agency, but I didn't name the agency. I didn't give out any details yeah. of what I did or anything like that. They tried to block me because I didn't get permission. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me is, you know, I wanted to share my brother's story and they wouldn't let me. So I, I left. Um, and then yeah, I became a cop again, which I didn't really want to do. I was, I, I did run its course, but I needed to get out of the air marshals and there was an opportunity. So I took it. And 17 years later, still there. So, um, yeah, that, that's pretty much my, my nutshell. Let, I, I, I want to, there, there's a leadership lesson in there. And, I, and I'm asking you not from somebody who's leading people like that, but from somebody who is like that. Somebody who has, um, and, and I think we all know those people. We've either managed them or we've been that person that um, if you're not, it, that that they're not they're not cut out for uh for just the routine they need to be challenged and mm-hmm. they're also the person who who questions the status quo and and you know if you if you le- read a lot of leadership books that's 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 Steve Jobs that's uh right that's Elon everybody who questions the status quo until they get to that point is considered a little bit of a pariah they're 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 a pain in the ass because they don't just ever accept things as they are. They're always asking, well, why or why not? So if you're a leader and you have that person, a lot of times you, you, uh, or, or leaders have a tendency to just to, to push them off as they're just a pain in my ass that way. Um, but, but that's, that's mischaracterizing or that's missing an opportunity to do something with a guy like yourself who goes, Hey, you have so much potential, the army, right? The army, uh, the army, had they been more fluid, probably could have said, Matt, I know how to keep you out of trouble. And it's by putting you on this. And, and today the, the army has like the innovation lab and things like that, that might be a better fit for a guy like yourself. So my question is, you are one of those guys. And I think there's a lot of us that, that find ourselves that we we're constantly questioning the status quo. When we find a leader who embraces that man, we succeed. But when we find a, a manager who, who doesn't know how to manage that, we're, we're just, we're a thorn in their side. You're like, listen, I got something to contribute to this organization. You are not just putting me in that position. How, how does a leader, how does a leader maximize that? Or, or what, what can they do to take somebody like you who has such great potential, who's, who's questioning of the status quo isn't intended to be, a pain in the ass. It's because I'm trying to make us better. How, how does the leader 
best get, how does a leader get the best out of somebody like that? Well, I think it depends on the type of structure of the organization. So if you look at the federal government in and of itself, it's a bureaucracy. So yeah. the, the cogs in the leadership chain are just layers of the bureaucracy. So you're not going to get a Matt Kubler to, to adjust to the overall mission of the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy is the thing that I'm fighting against. So yeah. where I didn't fit in in the federal air marshals, while I joined because I was pissed off about 9-11 and applied on 9-12 and was hired shortly thereafter, wow. that that my, my desire to help and serve was authentic. And then when I got there and after a year, it was no longer the thing that I was sold on. They, they did the bait and switch. And now I'm working for this machine that I'm not really participating in the thing that I signed up for. I'm not really protecting or serving or doing anything. I'm just making people feel warm and fuzzy like a, like a cruise line, Carnival, Carnival Cruise Line conductor. Like that's what I felt like. I didn't feel like I was really doing anything of, of merit. And when, I'm, when I have that feeling of no purpose, then I, my idle hands go crazy and my brain drifts and my attitude changes and, and things like that. So I don't think there was anything the air marshals could have done with me that would have changed what happened during my four years and three months. Um, <clears throat> but with law enforcement, I'll give you, a, in Pennsylvania, we're not like most states. We have more police departments in Pennsylvania than just about any other state in the country. Yeah. And so there's a lot of small municipalities that have eight-man, six-man, 10-man, 15-man departments. And I've worked in strictly small departments, small municipalities. The one I'm, I've worked, I worked in two before I went to the air marshals for a total of 10 years for that before that. Um, I'm now in the same one for 16 plus years. It's the longest I've done anything in my entire life. And it's because I have a leader who understood what he was asking to bring on. Like I'm not, I, there's never really any blurred lines with me. There's not a lot of confusion. I'm very clear and, and I, identify who I am. And I say, this is what I am. This is what I am capable of. These are my downsides. These are my positivities. These are the things that I can really do well. Do you want that? Because I, I don't need to hide me. Uh, that's, I'm very, I'm very self-aware. And that's something that growing up with a, uh, an autistic brother who stuttered and didn't communicate, I was able to speak for him. So understanding body language and human behavior and all that stuff, I learned that as a small child and it developed it for 50 years. Um, so when I went to my boss and I said, listen, when we were friends beforehand, I'm like, listen, dude, I'm not the easiest guy to, to manage. Did, did you go back to one of the departments that you left? No, it's a different totally department. Different. Okay. Yeah. But just all within the same county. So I sure. knew all the, the guys. So, and we had all started around the same time and he became chief. And, uh, I said, this is who I am. This is really what you want. He goes, dude, you're ever qualified for the job. Um, I need you to be someone that solves problems. And I'll let you do that however you see fit. I said, dude, that I'm in. <laughs> that's my that's my wheelhouse. Is if you're gonna, and then I then I made him prove that that he was gonna let me be that person. Yeah. That I am not, I haven't written a ticket in 17 years. Like I'm not writing tickets. I told him from the start. I said, I think it's it's actually wrong. Like I, I think what the government does to to find somebody that much money for making a mistake is, is wrong. And, the, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'd rather just pull them over, discuss the problem. Say, Hey, please don't do that again. It's in the system. Now, some other officer pulls you over and see, so you got a warning, probably going to get a ticket. And for me, that makes more sense. Why is that unique? So the, 
most people think there's a quota and that you know cops are sure. out writing tickets because we're they're trying to make money for their jurisdiction or whatever the case might be. Yeah. But the reality is no matter how many the amount of money that we could possibly generate in the eight man police department is nominal. Yeah. If we went out and wrote 10 tickets a day each, it would be just not what people think. So yeah, you're not covering not, your salaries. Yeah, no, it's not it's not a money generating op- operation. It's maybe for the government, but not certainly not for, for the police department. It's a punitive um, thing to try yeah, and reinforce and it, again. And it's a it's a trackable, right? Sure. It's something that that it's a metrics that they can justify your time. Um, and and I don't believe that I am there there's officer discretion exists for a reason. There is gray in the job. I live in the gray. I refuse to operate in the black and the white because I think that's boring. And I think it'll it it limits my ability to do the job and be flexible and adaptable to different situations, even though they may be the same environment like a domestic, each domestic is different. And how I handle that that call should be up to me because I'm the one that they're calling for help. Makes you less of a so, robot and more of a of a human and allows you to bring your human thinking problem solving elements to the to Yeah, the, and I'm not scenario. saying there should be all Matt Coopers all over the place. I'm just saying for <laughs> me and my boss who said that you work, you can work in, in that way here. And I'm going to give you the latitude to do that. And and he he did. And I've been very, very good at my job and solving problems and not creating more um, more drama within the department and the community because the community thinks Collegeville, where I work, has been rated in top 50 in the in the state of Pennsylvania, safest places to live. Um, not because we don't have crimes, it's because we solve problems. Yeah. And you know, just because I arrest somebody doesn't mean the problem goes away. How I how you solve that problem could be educating someone on on home security systems, right? On locking your car door, on being proactive in a community and then seeing the cars driving by. Bad guys may not come. Like there's all kinds of ways to lower crime that doesn't necessarily get tied directly to a, a traffic ticket or a, or an arrest. So tie that back, if I can ask, tie that back to, so that's helping people who are on the victims, the perpetrators of, and I'm not going to say crimes, because I like the word you use for mistakes, speeding. Um, you know, I was rushing, I, I had to get to the daycare before it closed. It, it wasn't a mistake. It was a conscious choice I made, but, uh, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to fine you $1,500 because you were trying to get there. To before the daycare closed and 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 you were going to have to pay an extra. I mean, we know what daycares charge yeah. or something like that. So you, you talked about how to how to educate the victims. How do you how do you handle those situations with the the perpetrators of the issue, whether it's deliberate, willful misconduct or something, or or juveniles being out after curfew and catching somebody underage drinking, all the the kind of the silly nonsense that that people do. How do you, how do you how do you uh, deal with that as a cop? Where you go, I'm not going to give you a punitive. I'm not going to arrest you, or I'm not going to give you a ticket, or whatever it is. When even though I can, because I have that officer discretion, how do you how do you how do you make decisions in that? What's your decision making well, process like? I go back to the fact I can read body language and, and human behavior in instantaneously almost. So I have an I have an increased advantage over maybe somebody else who didn't grow up the way I did. Sure. Um, so. I'm able to read situations pretty quickly and determine whether or not I'm dealing with somebody who is a, a poor driver who intentionally just has no care for other people on the roadway and is reckless versus someone who made a mistake and um, is truly um, sorry for, 
for violating the law or on some level. So sure. that, and then also, you know, if, if somebody's a repeat offender, you know, you call in a car stop, the computer pops up with the 15,000 times they've been pulled over. You yeah. kind of know what you're dealing with. So they're not there that are ways, for speeding. Yeah. Right. And and then you handle it differently. But for me, I, I where I've, I've always, you know, I, I like to keep it real and, and I'm not necessarily um, the most politically correct. Um, I, I have cursed on calls. I've cursed on car stops and I'll, I'll drop an F-bomb and I'm like, listen, you drive like a fucking dick. <laughs> Stop driving like a fucking dick. Like that's kind of something. And they're going to be like, oh, okay. And I'm like, listen, it's pretty simple. <laughs> We're not asking you to, to you know, solve a geometric equation. Just <laughs> don't be an ass when you drive. Like there's got to be a way that you can tell somebody not to be an ass. So, and I, I try to keep myself as authentic as possible so that they understand who they just dealt with and maybe their next interaction may not be the same way as, as it was with me, but I'm hoping that my interaction with them keeps them from having that next one. So they remember mm -hmm. that this cop who kept it real and didn't stick it to them when they easily could have that as they're driving and they notice, look down, they see the 15 miles an hour of the speed and they're like, Oh shit, I'm, I don't want to get pulled over. Cause I'm probably not going to get this guy that I just had. Yeah. And so I, I use, I try to use as much psychology as I possibly can to get somebody to have some level of um, meter in their brain to go, you know, it's no different than PTSD. You know, PTSD is caused by the brain, the brain's inability to, to handle a trauma it wasn't prepared for. So if I can program people through interactions, real interaction, authentic interactions, those memories become ingrained in their, ingrained in their brain so that when they're doing the same action again, Maybe it's that little man on the shoulder that says, yo, you may not be so lucky this time. Back it up. Slow down. Like that kind of thing. That's kind of when I approach law enforcement. I'm always trying to solve a problem so that the problem doesn't happen to me again for two reasons. One, I'm a loophole guy, right? I don't want to be doing all that paperwork every single time. Fair, fair enough. So I'm trying Those to- Self-preservation is an honest yeah, I mean, The job is, the, the worst part of police work is paperwork. And- you know, it's, it's meticulous. It's mundane. It's repetitive. It's, it's sometimes duplicated. And it's not why anybody became a cop. No. <laughs> and that's why you look at city and I'll give you a, a real quick example. City cops never come to the suburbs and do well. Cause in the city you have volume, right? So you have the guys that are on patrol, whether on a foot beat or a car or whatever, they're cuffing stuff, right? They're not writing reports. They're not filling out affidavits. They're not, um, they're not prosecuting cases in court. They're yeah. just robots cuffing stuff, cuffing stuff. And when you got to come out to the suburbs and do all that other stuff that comes with law enforcement, they're like, whoa, that ain't worth the money. And they go back to the city. You, uh, it, you mentioned several times in there, and I, and I, I think it's, it's poignant here. Um, like you have an empathy for not just a, a sympathy, but maybe an empathy because you're a, a guy who's always looking to, to, bend, uh, bend the rules, not necessarily break them, but bend the rules. And I think there's a subtle, but important difference in bending mm -hmm. the rules and, uh, and, and outright breaking them. Um, but you, and you referred to many times about your, your brother being special needs. Um, do you think growing up with a special needs brother, did, is, did that, did you, did you get some of that, even though you're a rule bender, did you get a lot of that, that empathy? Like, Hey man, everybody's dealt a different hand. And sometimes we just, need to, to, to try and walk a mile in somebody's shoes. Did, did you get that from, from growing up with your brother that way? Yeah. And then, you know, growing up and my, my dad left when I was nine months old. So it was 
me, my mom, and my brother. And my mom worked three jobs. So I know what hard work looks like. I understand yeah. what struggle looks like. I understand what poverty looks like. I understand what hunger looks like. I understand what getting picked on for not having new clothes looks like. I know all of those, those different vantage points that, and, and that's the way it should be in life. Life is a, is a, is a connective train of events that you hopefully are building off of and becoming a more evolved human being. And, you know, taking all those experiences and those traumas and, and managing them and dealing with them and then using them as, as some sort of positive fuel, or at least a teaching moment is kind of really what life is all about. So for me, I'm a very intentional person. I don't really react. I'm, I'm very strategic. I, I know my instincts. I, I not trusted my gut once and I lost when I didn't. Um, I, I rely on that as a, as a way of, of how I live life. Um, I think everything in life has to be intentional. If you go on cruise control, that's when life passes you by and you miss opportunities and, and or things happen that you are, aren't, aren't necessarily aware of or, or prepared for. Um, yeah. So I, for me, all of those experiences helps me in each one of the, inst the, the instances I have as a law enforcement officer, I can quickly recall those things which helped me make decisions in a much more expedient manner and how I handle people uh, oftentimes comes from one of those or multiple of those prior situations in my life that I can draw from. And whether it's, you know, domestic, whether it's child abuse, whether it's, you know, talking somebody off of trying to commit suicide or, or actually having to take somebody's life, like those things are all, you draw on, you know, people don't understand. And, and I did a TEDx audition where I thought I was top 20, uh, top 30, and they took top 25 for a TEDx. And I didn't get it because I'm a cop. Um, and it was a very intellectual group of people. And they felt that my topic was too intense and too controversial. And the, the topic of the TEDx talk was chaos. That was the theme. And I talked about the chaos that goes in a, a police officer's head when they have to take someone's life all of the moments yeah. leading up to pulling the trigger and how quickly that happens. And then how a police officer becomes a police officer and, and the understanding that, you know, as a cop, you can graduate high school at 18 and become a cop in Pennsylvania. What the fuck do you know about life at 18? But you could, yeah. you can go to college and get a degree in economics and become a cop. What the fuck do you know about being a cop 22 with an economics degree? Being a cop is about experiences. And if you didn't have those experiences growing up, that would make that you could easily see where law enforcement would have been present on some level. Yeah. You can't draw on anything in that moment when chaos hits. So you have to have one of two things, life experiences before you become a cop. Because if you call 911, you don't know if you're getting a guy that just got off field training and he was an economics degree and he doesn't know jack shit about anything. Or you can get the guy with 30 years who's seen it all, but you don't know and you don't get to pick. But you as the citizen, you still have a high expectation of success rate for the person you call to deal with whatever the problem is. And, and when you say when you say a high expectation of success rate, that's an interesting word, word choice for it, because what, what you're saying, and I don't, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but what you're saying is you're going to come. And to your point, you've mentioned problem solve. You're going to come help me solve my problem. You're going to 
use the least amount of force. And it's this isn't a conversation about, you know, excessive force and where the world is today and how the world sees cops and excessive force. We can have a, an offline conversation about that. I come from a family of cops. Both of my brothers are cops today. But it's a conversation about the expectation that when you come, you're going to help me solve my problem. If I'm being abused by my husband, you're going to make that problem stop. If that means arresting him and or or if it means helping us mitigate it. And, and that's why, you know, cops are, are part uh, therapist, part just listener, yeah. part part problem solver, part part law enforcement officer. Right. Uh, but you said you're going to. Uh, show up and you're going to uh, you, you're going to help me succeed. And I, I think it's interesting because that definition of success, I guess, is is just make the problem stop. But. Uh, in a way that. Me as the citizen. Meets your talk, standard. Yeah, it meets the my standard. standard right. Each person's standard is different. When and to your point, that that me, that life yeah. experiences is where. That life experience is where you need to come and realize what their expectation of not only what what success means, but how you're going to solve that problem for them. And absent those things, you show up as the cop, say the rookie cop who's got no life experience, what behind the ears, never been punched in the nose, never smoked a joint, nothing. Yeah. And you go in a situation that you've never dealt with before, but the person who called needs you to solve it to their level of satisfaction. That that. Mm. And, and you don't even know what that is. You don't know yeah. what their expectation is, but you, you will either meet or fall short. And it doesn't, that's how the, the, the opinion of police changes constantly is because we have these, these young guys that don't know jack shit that are showing up and trying to solve problems that are complex that they've never, ever dealt with before yeah. to the level of expectation the citizen wants. And when you get into a situation where um, lethal force is required, you have to think about the fact that what if it's that kid that's got no, no, nothing. Like he's got zero ability to make that decision and do it right every single time. Because you don't get a chance to mess up when it comes to taking somebody's life without your entire life being destroyed. Yeah. Whether it was justified or not, you will have some part of your life destroyed. Yeah. And every kid that has to make that decision or every veteran that has to make that decision, the process by which they make that decision and the, and the speed in which that decision has to be made is so, so intense that it's not, there is very little time for hatred or animosity or racism or anger. It's usually, oh shit, assess in like nanoseconds, everything's replaying through your brain, what you just think you saw, assess whether or not that's worthy of you pulling your gun out and pulling a trigger. Those are, that's real. And then factor in the, whatever the call was, if you're a young kid and you're going to a, a, a break-in, and you walk in the house and you're searching the house, all of a sudden some dude pops out of a closet, you know, you're you're already at like threat yeah. level alpha, right? So all of a sudden now this pops in and you have to make a split second decision based on your fear, which is real, but it's based on your lack of knowledge and understanding of what you've done. You've never done this before, but it's, you're given a gun. You have to make these choices. What if this guy did have a gun and you didn't react and he killed you and then your wife and children are left without a father and a like all these things that come into play is what causes that chaos in the brain of a police officer. And it's not until you have enough experiences in life can you actually have some level of confidence that you can do it well. What, uh, what in the name of the book is? I'm sorry, I don't know that. It's a Brother's Love, a memoir I wrote in 2006. So, you know, some people for that are, this is a copy of it right here. Me and my brother, when we were, I was like 
three and he was five or six. Um, why, uh, why, why write the book? I, I went through 13 years of depression after my brother died where, you know, I had PTSD for lack of a better term. You know, yeah. everybody understands what that is now. I wasn't expecting, I wasn't prepared. I never could have imagined a day where I didn't have him in my life. And I certainly didn't expect to wake up one day and he'd be dead. Um, so I went through and I didn't really have a lot of grieving time. Six weeks later, I was in basic training. Um, I never grieved and I became angry and I, I became disinterested in uh, feeling anything. And um, I was in a dark place for a long time. And it wasn't until there was a moment that happened after my son was born, my second child, that uh, something was given to me that was made out of my brother's a quilt that was made out of my brother's clothes that my grandmother had kept for all these years for whatever reason. And it sort of triggered this emotional, um, uncontrollable emotional reaction. And I went down to my office at like eight o'clock at night and I came back up at 730 in the morning and I'd written 26,000 words of memories. And I just, wow. they were just, it was literally just like this like a like a movie scenes of just memories flashing into my brain I'm just writing and writing because I had to get them out and I'm just sobbing and writing and sobbing and writing and um when anybody that reads the book with what I always get from them are these they are so vivid the memories are so like the things I write about it was as if they could see them and it's because I wrote them in a moment when they were literally I was reliving them and I just felt this weight start to just release and from that moment on, it just, I, was, I didn't know I was writing a book. I was just getting shit out. And my mom's a, a retired English teacher. And I said, mom, I wrote 26,000 words last night about Andy. What do I do? She goes, you write a book. So I hadn't read a book since Animal Farm in ninth grade. <laughs> Great book. Very poignant for today. Um, and I'm like, well, mom, I haven't read a book. <laughs> so well, maybe you yeah, should. I can't write one if I haven't read one yet. Right. I started reading and I was reading Michael Connolly books and I read some memoirs and, and, you know, as an air marshal again, we're on planes a lot. So I realized that I could probably write a book about my life. It's not like I needed to research anything. So I just started doing it in 2006, right before um, February, 2006, I left in June of 2006 from the air marshals. Um, I published it against the air marshals wishes and uh, that's the single greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Awesome, man. That's a, that's, a, that's probably a good, uh, a good stopping point. Uh, I think there's probably a lot more we could talk oh, yeah. about just in terms of the, of the catharsis and, and the, the emotional release and, and, and how the body and, and the brain need that. And, uh, but, uh, well, that, that just gives us reason to bring you back on again and have that, that conversation another time. Hey, uh, I know you have, uh, your own podcast. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you where folks can find you and the name of the podcast. It's everywhere. Um, two dates and a dash. So two, the number two dates and a dash. Um, the name comes from actually Tebow. Um, he, in a lot of his speeches, would recite a poem called The Dash, where your life is made up of two dates, the date you're born, the date you die, and the dash is the life that you live. Or how are you living your dash? And uh, it always just stuck with me. And I knew that I, if I was going to do a podcast, it had to be based on no rules, yeah. um, no structure. Uh, because that's who I am. And so it's a very fluid conversational show. I've had everyone from you know, famous athletes and, and actors and, and stuff like that to moms who lost their kid from an opioid overdose. So I just want to feature people who have epic stories, have lived the shit out of their dash and uh, have the ability to engage in a deep conversation. So and I, I think out of the 130 
nine or 40, whatever episodes I have, I probably got 95% success rate in that. And I got a couple coal bundles in there, but you know, yeah. I think that's just what every show is, but I'm proud of it. And it's, you know, anywhere on, on, on any platform, they can go to mattkubler.com. They can see it there. Um, they can see the videos also. If they don't want to go to my website, go to YouTube for Matt Kubler. And I'm not on any social media because I've been banned. Um, so <laughs> I'm on Instagram, but I don't let anybody follow me because M A T T C U B B L E R dot com or on, on YouTube at Matt Kubler Kubler. Um, and it's two dates and a dash is the name of the uh, podcast. And it's all your, on all your uh, podcast distro channels. Is that right? That's correct. Awesome. Hey Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you brother. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Likewise. Thanks very much, man.